Please turn with me again this week in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look together at all of the rest of chapter 2. Now, this is a large portion, and I will not address every aspect of it in detail today because there are several themes that are introduced that will occur again several times in Hebrews. So I'm going to focus on how this portion of Scripture works to expound upon what we spoke of last week. That is such a great salvation that we have been given in Christ. Really, that's what the balance of this chapter is attempting to do, is to expound on that. There are some themes, like the suffering of Christ, his work as the great high priest. We're going to come back to that as we study Hebrews together, as those are themes that will continue to reoccur. But I wanted to look at this whole portion because it's one thought that works to really explain what is said in chapter 2, verse 3, such a great salvation that we have been saved by. We have been saved from the wrath of God in Christ. We have been saved to peace with God in Christ, a new life, from death to life. And life means living. So we've been given a new life in Christ. That's what salvation is. It's about bringing people sons and daughters, to glory. Salvation to God means bringing us to glory. Not just plucking us, but plucking us and using us for his glory. Hear God's word, Hebrews 2, verse 5 down to the end of the chapter. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for your words, for it gives us clear, direct guidance. And Lord, passages like this give us proper motivation for serving you, that we understand such a great salvation saved us, that you are bringing sons and daughters to glory now, even now, 
And I pray, Lord, that we would be compelled to walk in the newness of our lives, our lives that are united to Christ as a result of what we hear today from your word. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, bringing sons to glory is another way of describing salvation in God's terms. It's not just plucking you from the flame. That's part of it. But it's giving you a new life and nurturing you in it. That's what salvation is about. That's why it's such a great salvation. Save from something to something. That'd be great enough if we were just plucked from the flame. I think we'd agree. But he then gives us new life. He crowns us in his son. He makes us his jewel, so to speak. In fact, one of my favorite sermons preached by Charles Spurgeon has to do with just this concept. It's from a different passage. He's speaking on the passage where the Pharisees are muttering about Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. And listen to what Spurgeon says, because it touches on this great salvation that this passage speaks of. Spurgeon said, this is the greatest wonder in heaven or on earth, or even in hell. There is no marvel like the truth that he who ever lives bowed his head to die for sinners. And having made atonement for sin, now receives the very chief of sinners into his heart's love and makes us his companions and friends. He takes us from the dunghill and wears us as jewels in his crown. He plucks us as brands from the burning and preserves us as precious monuments of his mercy. None are so precious in his sight as the sinners for whom he died. That's what's such a great salvation that is spoken of in 2 verse 3. How shall we escape such a great salvation? It was attested to us by those who heard. That's the great salvation that is the bedrock and the foundation for the rest of the chapter. In expounding upon the concept of such a great salvation, the writer of Hebrews here in verses 5 down to 18 show us the great length that God went to save and nurture us. And I believe firmly that there is no stronger application of God's word than the knowledge of Christ in all his glory, all his saving glory. That's what we learn from this passage, and it will motivate us anew. Look at verse 5 first as we see how it is that Christ, as a starting point, Christ is the answer to your life as all things are in subjection to him. It starts in verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man? So he's starting to tell us that Jesus is the one that all things have been given to. He's the one who has dominion over all things. He, therefore, my brothers and sisters, is who you ought to go for, for what you need. Not human wisdom, not human device, not pop this or that, to Christ. In fact, don't even listen to me if I'm not pointing you to what Christ says. That's the litmus test, by the way, for a healthy church. Their view and their teaching and their proclamation on Christ, because all things have been given to his dominion. So it's all about Christ. That's who we go to. In fact, why, why start on just a lower level? Anything else is lower than going to Christ. I had a friend who was notorious for getting deals at stores, really an acquaintance. He would go in and he would look for something that was mismarked, and he would just argue that they had to, he had to, they had to give him the price that it said on there, even though it was obviously mismarked. And he would stand there until they would do it. In fact, finally, he got so good. What, did he, what he would do is he'd go in right away and he'd say, let me see the manager. That's the Trump, you know. When I worked in customer service for a year, only a year, I remember people calling and I had the list of rules in front of me. It was a credit card division of this bank. 
And all sorts of reasons for why they wanted their limit raised or why they wanted to do this or why they wanted to do that or that was late. And so I would give them the rules. But who was I? I was a schmuck. Joe Worker. What did they say to me every time I got into the rules? What do you all say? Can I talk to your manager? Okay, that's the negative side of it. But why do we waste so much time looking at subsidiary authorities or ones that don't even necessarily have authority, but because pop culture says that they're gurus and this or that, go to Christ. That's what the passage is essentially saying. It's all in subjection to him. He has dominion over it all, so don't waste time in all these corollary means unless they are pointing you to Christ. Go to Christ. Look at verse 6, down to verse 8. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Now, as a word on this, it's not that the writer of Hebrews has forgotten where this comes from. It is testified somewhere. He's quoting Psalm 8. Later, he quotes Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8. It's not that at all. The reason why the writer doesn't include any of the names of the people who wrote these, like David, who wrote the psalm, or Isaiah, who writes Isaiah, it's to not detract from the glory of Christ. That's the whole theme of the book. It's all about Christ. He's superior to prophets. He's superior to the angels. He is not a created being. He is the creator himself. And so all of it's about Christ. He doesn't want to do anything to detract, and all the respect that is garnered from the name of David. He doesn't want to mention David to, the, to this audience or Isaiah, the great prophet. They're great people, but they're tools of God. So he doesn't use the names. He says it's been testified somewhere, and the people would know because they were familiar with the Old Testament. Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, we've always known this psalm, and it claimed it to some degree to be our own, and it's true, as we are united to Christ. But primarily, it's about Jesus, and that's what Hebrews helps us to understand, that for a time, Jesus was made lower than the angels, and that while he took on flesh, he gave up independent access to his divine attributes. He gave them completely and utterly to the will of the Father, and in that way became lower than the angels for a time. But then when he went to the cross and perfectly fulfilled God's mission for him, he was crowned with glory and honor. Everything was then put under subjection to him. And even now, he's making the nations a footstool for Jesus. What a picture of the one who owns everything. Everything is under him. What is man that you are mindful of him? The psalmist asks, and the Hebrews writer brings up again. He's saying, you being the infinite and eternal God, what is finite man? Who am I to you? I'm so limited. I'm so feeble. I'm so broken. Why would you think of me? And think of me in a way that you would become man to then pay the price for me. What a picture of this great salvation. And Christ, my brothers and sisters, is the answer to all things, as all things are in subjection to them. In fact, the Hebrews writer makes clear as he repeats Psalm 8, he then says, by way of, if you will, divine commentary in the first part of verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, repeating what he has quoted, he left nothing outside his control. In case you didn't get it, when the psalmist says everything, the writer's saying, he left nothing, he let nothing out of his control. There's not one thing, there's not one rogue molecule in this universe that is outside of the control of Jesus Christ. That's why I insist that you ought to go to Christ for what you need. 
Putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, he says. Well, what does he mean by this? Now, he emphasizes that Christ has dominion over all things. But what does it mean to say that we have not yet seen everything in subjection to him? There is a legal truth that happened when Jesus rose again and was crowned, given the name above all names. That's a legal reality. It's all his. Then there's a realization of that fact, that legal reality that plays itself out. Let me put it to you this way. When you buy a house, at least this is how it was for us, you go to the signing, the signing with the different powers that be that are there, and you sign this, and you take custody or you take possession of the house. But you're not in the house. You take possession, you're given the key, but you're not in it yet. You've got to drive across town, turn the key, and go into the house. Okay, the legal reality is that it's all Jesus's. It all belongs to him. Now the realization of it is playing itself out as he works these things together for him. Mainly, mainly through those who are united to Christ. So this dominion that Christ has is now being lived out in and through his people and will ultimately culminate in all things being made to bow to him. So there's this legal description that Jesus has dominion over all things and there's also this reality that not everything is his subjection, yet it's coming under subjection. That's the living out of the playing out of this truth of Scripture. In fact, you probably can remember in your reading a key aspect to being human is having dominion. But we blew it. Remember what happened before the fall of man, before we chose to rebel against God? In Genesis 1, verse 28, God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. The pre-fall state of man was to have care over everything. That's, that's what we are made. We're made that gloriously to do that, to be in the image of God, to then take care of, have dominion over the earth. But we fell. We sinned. We lost that. We are no longer able. We are no longer able to maintain dominion. In fact, I cannot even keep dominion over my front yard. Uh, I've hit my lawn three times now with weed killer. I mean, my children are starting to glow. I have so much stuff on my lawn. And the dandelions keep coming back, to which my four-year-old thinks are, are, are pretty and continues to bring bouquets of them to, at least not this year so far. I think he's getting that we don't like these things. I can't keep dominion over just that component, just that, just that little whatever fifth acre I have. We can't keep dominion over the earth anymore, and we don't. We fail in this. But God sent a second Adam. That's because of the first Adam. He sent a second Adam, and that's what this is referring to. This dominion, this subjection that now Jesus has been given is, is in essence, a reward for his succeeding where the first Adam failed. The first Adam failed at the temptation, didn't he? The second Adam did not fail. When the devil tempted him, he did not fail. Any temptation that was, was brought upon the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, he succeeded in resisting it. And so he succeeded where the first Adam failed. Now then, regaining what was lost. And so all who are united to the second Adam now, by faith, have part in this dominion that he's going to work out. That is the plan of salvation. It's not just about plucking you from the fire and giving you a personal great life. It's about the overall macro-redemptive plan that he's doing to reconcile all things to himself based on the dominion of Christ to whom you are united by faith. It's not just about your little old life. It's about the bigger thing God's doing through his people and his changing of his people. 
That's what's being spoken of. It's simple, but it's big when we talk about the plan of redemption. That's why 1 Corinthians speaks of this second Adam, Jesus. Thus it is written, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. The first man was a man. He was a created being. The second, the second man is from heaven. He is God himself who has come to save us. And he is the one who has been given dominion over all things. Nothing that exists is not under his authority. Corporately, Jesus Christ is the king of this church. The litmus test of a healthy church is their Christology, what they say about Christ. That's how we know how healthy a church is. Regardless of what denomination you affiliate with, uh, what person is your pastor, or who you are, it's what you say about Christ. Also, personally, Christ is completely sufficient for all your needs. All of them. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter, or 2 Peter 1, His divine power has granted to us most of the things that pertain to life and godliness. No, that's not what it says. God's word says that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's a big promise. How can he say that? Because everything's in subjection to him. He can do it. He can give it. He has the power to give it, and he does to those who are united to him. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That's how this divine power works itself out. So first and foremost, the way we see the writer expounding upon this great salvation is first, Jesus has all things submitted to him, therefore he can meet your needs. He is your answer. Also, though, the foundation for this is also expounded in verses 9 down to the end. We see here that Christ himself paid the required price for your redemption. Look at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. So he wasn't lower than the angels. He was exalted over them. But he was for a time in the incarnation made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. This is a first personal reference to Jesus. Christ has come throughout the first chapter and the first few verses of chapter 2. But now, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, that unmerited favor given to those who deserve nothing but wrath, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So he takes on flesh for us, became human, confined himself to the limitations of humanness in order to purchase our redemption as one of us. But then he also tasted death for us. And let me be, explain something here. Where the text says he tasted death for everyone, let us not misunderstand that. That is not teaching that Jesus died arbitrarily for everybody who ever lived. That is not what Scripture teaches as a whole. This verse can be misused. In fact, in the context, the universe of discourse, that is, the people to whom he's speaking of, he's speaking of everyone, that covenant community to who he wrote to. He's talking about those who are there in hearing. It would be the same as at the beginning of a congregational meeting, me saying, is everyone here? I don't mean everyone on earth. I mean, is everyone that's supposed to be here, here? That's what is meant by that. It's particular. It's limited to those for whom he's been given. It's powerful and it's perfect. It's exactly for those to whom the Father had given him. In fact, if we look at this subject throughout the scriptures, it's very clear that Jesus has a particular mission with a particular way of accomplishing it, dying for those God had given him. Spurgeon, again, says this in a sermon on this matter. We hold that Christ did not redeem every man, 
but only redeem those men who will ultimately attain unto eternal life. We do not believe that he redeemed the damned. In other words, those who had already been in hell. He didn't come and die for them as well. They'd be in heaven if that were the case. That's how powerful his blood is. Spurgeon continues, We do not believe that he poured out his lifeblood for souls already in hell. We never can imagine that Christ suffered in the room in the stead of all men, and that then afterwards these same men have to suffer for themselves. We do not believe that Christ pays their debts, and then God makes them pay their debts again a second time. We hold to this, and I affirm what Spurgeon says is what Scripture teaches, that Christ laid down his life for his sheep, and that his laying down his life for the sheep involved and secured the salvation of every one of them. That's what it says in the balance of the Scripture's message. And no different here when it speaks to this pointed audience about Christ paying for their redemption. It says, continuing in verse 11, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, them, the pointed folks that he's speaking of, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God, I am the children God has given me. These are all references to his oneness with us, that he is not ashamed to call us brethren. But notice what it says in verse 14, because it gives us why it is that Christ can pay for our sins. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Two words, or two concepts, flesh and blood, that is, were related, and slavery. Those two concepts are key, brothers and sisters. It's, it's rooted in the scriptures, and we miss it if we don't understand the Old Testament concept. First of all, there's this concept of the kinsman redeemer. Someone who's going to pay the price for your sin must be related to you for your debts. Think of the ways in which you could become a slave, because the word is used here, slavery to the fear of death. How could you become a slave in antiquity, do you think? Several ways. One, you could be born into slavery. The son of a slave was himself considered a slave. Secondly, you might be captured by an invading army and then become a prized captive, led away in chains to a foreign country to be sold as a slave. Or thirdly, and actually most commonly, especially in this first century time, one might fall into debt so that he was forced to declare bankruptcy. This involves selling yourself then into slavery to pay the debts that were owed. Get out of your mind American slavery. That's the worst one that's ever the world has ever seen, quite frankly. We're talking more of an indentured servitude that is true, especially the first century Christians, or Jewish people as well. This idea they would come into some kind of financial hardship, try to picture it particularly, some kind of financial hardship, their crops failed, something happened, they couldn't feed their family, so they'd sell themselves into indentured servitude as a slave so they could pay off the person that they had to get provisions from. Now they were slaves. Could they ever stop being a slave is the question. Is there a way out of slavery is the question. Well, God's word provided a way for this to happen. In Leviticus, it says this, and listen closely. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. This is how. Notice how redemption happens. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him. Someone who is kin. Or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. So you see the options? 
Someone who's kin can redeem you, or you can do it yourself. Is it possible to do it yourself? Not if you're a slave. You have to have a kinsman do it. That's where Jesus Christ comes in and is so vivid in this passage. Flesh and blood, he takes on brotherhood with us and that he experiences humanity that he might pay for our redemption because only he could. If you look at Leviticus, it says that for someone to redeem someone out of slavery, they must be a kinsman, they must be free themselves, they must be able to pay the price, and they must be willing to pay the price. That perfectly describes our Savior. He's our kinsman that he's taken on flesh. He is free himself, the one who all things have been given subjection to him. He is able to pay the price by his own life's blood, and he's willing to pay the price. That's the powerful richness of what the author of Hebrews is saying here, that Jesus perfectly pays our redemption as our kinsman redeemer. Now look at verse 14 and verse 15 with new eyes. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What a perfect way to describe those who are without Christ. They are afraid. They are terrified by death. They are slaves to it. They live their life to live longer. They'll freeze themselves so as not to die. That's slavery to death that the Christian no longer has binding him or her. In fact, there's an astounding statistic that you may be aware of. Ten out of ten people die. Are you a slave to that? Because you're going to die. Unless Christ comes back, you, me, everyone here is going to die. Are we enslaved to that fact? Or is there a sweetness that comes to the fact that we never die? Those who come to me will never die, Christ says, in its truest sense. And the sting of death is released. I had such a wonderful, blessed experience uh, to be able to visit a dear friend before he went to be with the Lord. My, my friend and mentor, Alan Schumacher, uh, who was a youth mentor in youth groups that Pastor Nathan and I were part of when we were growing up. He was like the best friend of Pastor Ben Robinson, who I always refer to and speak of as the guy who was most personally influential in my life for Christ. Alan was his friend, and we became to know him, got to know him, would visit when we would go uh, to where he was pastoring, and just really enjoyed our relationship with him, just a wonderful man of God. Uh, just a young man, he died on Easter Sunday. He's just 51 years old. But I had the opportunity, because I happened to be in Atlanta 10 days before for a denominational meeting, to sit with him for three hours, uh, just 10 days before he went home to be with the Lord. And I remember the very candid discussion we had together, and he was as weak and as feeble as one could be, but as strong in the Lord as one can be. And I remember him saying, he couldn't even feed himself, it was to that point. And I remember him saying how he's not looking forward to the process of dying. He had some anxiety about just what it would be like to actually die. But he said to me, as he's shaking and he's saying this to me, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just nervous about that. He said, but Tony, I'm not scared of dying. I knew what he meant. 51 years old, he's not going to see his children grow much older, but he's not afraid of death. He's been set free because Christ's redemption paid to free him from that fear. I hope you're not afraid of death today. There's only one who can redeem you from that fear. That's Christ. And it comes down to something even more particular and practical, if you will. The last two verses, because of who Jesus is, all things are in subjection to him. Because he's paid the price and freed us as our kinsman redeemer. He can help you with temptation. Look at verse 10. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, as he's the creator of all things, 
in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect or complete through suffering. He brings us brothers and sisters in him. Completion because of his completion. He can then help us by way of identifying with us. Verse 11, for he sanctifies, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is, this is the will of God. This comes forth from God. That, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Did you get that? He is not ashamed to put his arm around me and say, I'm his brother. I know my heart. You know your heart. And you know how dark it is in its natural state. In that Jesus could put his arm around you and say before the Father, I am not ashamed to call him my brother. I remember there was a, a, a good friend of mine who I was able to play soccer with through my teen years all the way through high school. He was excellent. He went on to play professionally. And during our time playing together, everyone had great respect for his abilities because he was such a good player. But he had this little brother who was incredibly an- annoying. He was four years younger than him, and he brought him to every practice. And we all had to kind of put up with him. He wasn't very good. I mean, he's four years younger than all of us. And here he is, and we had to put up with him because we knew that Jake wanted his little brother with us. And it went on like this. We kind of murmur behind his back a little bit saying, boy, I wish Chris wasn't here. He gets in the way. He's not fast enough. He's whining all the time about running. And we just kind of built up this thing behind Jake's back that we didn't like his brother. Well, one day came when we were starting a new season, a new year, and we had a lot of promise as a team. And he took his brother and put his arm around his brother and said to the team, as if he knew what was going on behind the scenes, this is my brother, and he's going to play with us. Listen, whatever we had thought before, okay, he could play. Because of the connection we had with his authority, his credibility, his brother now took on a whole new meaning. And incidentally, his brother's now about 6'5", and played several years professionally himself. So I take back all that, I said. The point being is he now numbered him with himself. He was not ashamed to call him brother. He wasn't embarrassed because of his little brother. And Jesus Christ is not ashamed of you. He is not ashamed of you. Oh, you don't know what I've done, Pastor. I don't. But I know he's not ashamed of you. Because of all he has done, he has done it for a reason, so that he could stand and hold you and say, this is my brother and I'm not ashamed of him. That makes all the difference in how he relates with us. Look at verse 16. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Remember what the offspring of Abraham are? In Galatians 3, I read earlier in the baptism. Those who by faith trust in him. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Here we have this picture of the champion Christ who is this this champion of his people. In fact, one commentator says it well. Jesus is shown as the champion who came to the aid of the oppressed people of God. He identified himself with them as their representative. He became locked in mortal combat with the fearsome adversary who held the power of death. He overthrew the devil in order to release those whom the evil tyrant had enslaved. Jesus is the champion who secured the deliverance of his people through the sufferings he endured. And that very redemptive work is the same work that helps us say no to the little things that continue to confront us and assail us. Remember this, temptation is from the devil and his legacy. Could be the devil, the flesh, or the world. Trials are what God sends to hone us. Temptations are there to make us fall. Jesus underwent the ultimate temptation, unlike anything we could relate with. He 
fasted for those 40 days and nights, and then the devil comes to him and attempts him with, uh, attempts him with power, with possessions, with passions. All the ways that Adam was confronted. And in every way, Jesus perfectly resisted the temptation. So though it's true that God the Son is different than us, and that he is not able to sin, it's not that he has not gone through what we go through. And the fact that he has not succumbed to it is why you have power in the blood of Christ to say no to whatever it is. And how did he do it when the devil confronted him? He didn't say, be gone, Satan, be destroyed. He could have. He said, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Three times. It is written. Away with me, Satan. Away from me, Satan. It is written. That's the description that he gives for us. How we are able to say no to temptation. And it's purely and completely based on the credibility of Christ. This Christ-centered sermon is going to be repetitive, brothers and sisters. It will always come back to Christ. He is our sufficiency. He's why we can say no. He's why you name the sin you're struggling with, the sin that you're going to struggle with when you go home today, when you lie in bed at night, when you get up in the morning, when you're at work, whatever that is for you, you can say no because of the credibility of the one who empowers you and is not ashamed to call you a brother. It will not cast you off, but will stand there holding you on that day. We have before us in this last part of chapter 2 a picture of what God is doing. He is bringing many sons and many daughters to glory. You're one of those. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for, again, giving us exposure to the gospel, exposure to the way we are saved, Christ's work. I pray that we would renounce any vestige of human goodness that we hold on to and that we would cast ourselves at the feet of Christ, knowing that he is the one who paid the price, the perfect price, and given us complete remission for our sins. Pray that you would bring glory to yourself as we become an empowered people living in the victory that is purchased by the one who has dominion, our Lord Jesus, our elder brother. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.